Dr. Naveen Goyal is a physician and entrepreneur who serves as the CEO of Loud Capital, an early-stage venture capital and alternative investment firm leveraging capital, entrepreneurship, and education to grow impactful companies across the globe. Bringing his physician training to do good for people, Naveen strives to make venture capital more purpose-driven, inclusive, and impactful. Before co-founding Loud Capital, Naveen practiced anesthesiology in a large hospital-based setting and was the medical director of a community hospital for several years. The beginning of his entrepreneurial journey was co-founding Ofer Health, formerly SmileMD, a venture-backed mobile healthcare company that expands access to care across the United States with a dedicated focus on lower-income and rural communities. And we talk about that quite a bit in the episode. His story, his experience, and what he sees as an opportunity for physicians to have a broader impact on themselves and society is the focus of his book, Physician Underdog. Naveen received his MD from the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine and trained in anesthesiology at the University of Chicago Medical Center. So we discussed his journey from the OR to the boardroom, how the grass is actually greener after leaving medicine, why we need to dig our well before we're thirsty, and by thirsty I mean stagnating or burnt out, why venture capital funds aren't as risky as I thought, and how to pick a fund for investing. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. It's story time, brought to you by locumstory.com. Today, we'll be reading Docs in Shocks. Some docs are overworked as work works overworked workers weary. Some docs are overstocked, stopped as pandemic TikToks keep docs off clocks. If docs are in shock as the pandemic clock TikToks, then locum is the token to unburn the burnt out broken. So how many clock TikToks must talk until docs tick box and swaps to the spoken locum tenens token to unburn the burnt out broken? Enough ticks have talked. The time is now, and locums is how. Locum tenens tends to trend as a godsend, mend to burnt out ends. For more locum tenens information, go to drpodcastnetwork.com slash locumstory. It's your final destination. Naveen Goyle, thanks so much for reading on the podcast. Thanks, Brad. I appreciate this conversation we're about to have. So let's talk about your origin story. How do you wake up one day and a practicing full-time anesthesiologist and the next day a full-time venture capitalist or capesthesiologist? So this is like a Superman story, right? Where you just wake up, you go into a phone booth and you come out and you're just a different person, right? That's how life works. Exactly. With you. Yeah. So what seems like a giant leap was actually a bunch of small steps. Wanted to be a physician like many people probably listening here and became an anesthesiologist after training in Chicago. I was happy. I got my ultimate goal of becoming a physician, finally earning real income and was happy and start a family, et cetera. It just became after taking boards and getting a little bit bored and starting to realize that I had no test to take, no forced reading to learn, to do something different, to preserve my career. And I started looking around and I actually started reading at the age of 30. And 
I was one person who never read. My parents wanted me to read books. I never did. I never wrote or read only what I needed to. And so finally, at the age of 30, leisure reading became a thing for me. And I realized why people actually enjoyed reading. I started learning about new things. One of them was businesses that I was reading about in the Wall Street Journal that were going public, businesses that were raising money. And I was reading about angel investors and how there was these people who were investing early into companies and going along the journey. And some of them made a lot of money, but really that, you know, things that were intriguing to me were that people were along the journey of this crazy story that started really small and now it's on a public market. So this world of entrepreneurship, this world of angel investors really got a hold of me and I became inundated with reading everything about it. And I read the Wall Street Journal section every single day. I talked about it. I started investing myself. I started out with real estate, which I respect as an investment and as an asset class, but it really wasn't my cup of tea. It wasn't something that I invested in and got excited about or learned a lot about. It was more, hey, I invested in this and now I'm waiting to see what kind of dividends or income I can get from it. You had a different reading selection than I did. Sounds a lot more productive because when I graduated (laughs) residency, the first thing I read was A Song of Ice and Fire, which is uh, Game of Thrones, right? So I learned all about a world that doesn't exist. And that did not help me. It definitely didn't help me in dating because I was single at the time. Yeah, it didn't help me start a business. So a lot more productive reading choices for you. I'm going to throw this right back at you. Actually, you know, I've just made a few statements that were a decade worth of time. So in that inundated in entrepreneurship, I absolutely read the Game of Thrones, the whole series. I was, in fact, it took me several months to get through the five books. And I actually remember being depressed after reading that series because there was nothing else like it. And so what it did, I think, and probably did to you, was engage these creative juices. It's a new world. It's like fantasy. To me, that's the of entrepreneurship. It's infusing creativity and then keep on going to potentially produce productivity, right? Like taking something creative, problem solving, making a business out of it, that is entrepreneurship. So you actually were reading pretty foundational stuff. It actually, it, it helped to guide my real estate investments because you know, Westeros property in Westeros is really at a, a premium right now. The Summer Isles, really popular right now. Okay, sorry, sorry. No, that's fine. So, you know, I was investing. I met a lot of great entrepreneurs. And then in 2014, I had the opportunity to start a venture called Smile ND. It's a mobile anesthesia company that I co-founded with two other close friends of mine who are also anesthesiologists. And we had an opportunity where a few dentists wanted anesthesia at their practice. There were people that were flying in for very expensive procedures for several hours worth of work, and they wanted an anesthesiologist to come and do anesthesia for that duration. And after we looked around and realized there weren't a lot of anesthesia options, we moved forward on this idea. We did a lot of research. We, I, I think it really helped that there was two other people around me and us as a group decided to move forward. And I say that because I think it's really hard to take this big risk or go into this huge zone of discomfort when you're alone. And I respect when people can do it, but I know myself and the ventures that I've started have been with groups 
And I think that's really helped. And so we moved forward. This was back in 2014. I won't go too deep into it, but we knew nothing about business, marketing, legal, anything. We knew anesthesia and that was the core. And that's the point. You don't always know every component. It's knowing something and then moving forward and learning a bunch of other stuff. So out of us three, I was probably the most alpha out of us. And so I was more assertive and I went out to the entrepreneurial community here in Columbus where I grew up and where I was practicing anesthesia and spoke to a lot of entrepreneurs, spoke to attorneys, spoke to people who have retail businesses, invest in real estate. I spoke to a lot of people and I was a sponge. How do we price this? How do we market? How do we create an LLC? Do we need a website? Everything. And it was these slow pieces of information that we incorporated as a group and kept moving forward. And what have we put into ourselves in medical school is that we know how to learn and we can take large bits of information, incorporate them and keep going. And so if people just realize that's how the world works, you've already proven to yourself and to others that you can learn, nothing can stop you. You can learn any subject in a short amount of time compared to a lot of other people. This is not for ego. This is just to really revisit what you've proven to yourself. So move forward on this. Probably I will say it's seven years later. And so it was not a straight line, like a beautiful movie of entrepreneurship and had some big deals. People are spraying money around and life is amazing. There were several times where we got kicked in the gut. We said, do we need to move forward on this? This is so slow. What are we doing? We're not even putting our full heart into it because we're still working in our main anesthesia jobs. So what are we doing? But we made some moves. We hired people to give it a real chance. We brought on a CEO in 2017, running full-time because we saw the opportunity to optimize office-based procedures. And that's essentially what this is. This is, there's a lot of procedures that are done around the world in a hospital or a surgery center, or let's just say an operating room of some sort because of staff, because of anesthesia, because of certain things. It's not because the whole package is only there. And so for a lot of procedures in this country, they are going to surgery centers and hospitals for the anesthesia. If you can bring that component to offices and enable these procedures, you don't need a sterile operating room. You don't need crazy overhead, other specialists, a lot of funky equipment that isn't already in an office that's prepared to do certain procedures. You have a model here, and that's essentially what we've built. So we're now in four states as of today. We're venture-backed, so we raise a Series A to get money from venture capitalists to grow. We now are at about close to 70 employees, and we're taking care of a lot of kids and adults. And so I said all those stats proudly because I'm like many people listening on this podcast where we... We're like, we have something here. We kept moving forward, got punched in the gut a million times, didn't know certain things, tried to learn it. When we still saw a gap, we brought people on board. We did what we needed to. And now we're employing a lot of families where, you know, our very first employee is still with us and she's got a bigger office with windows and it's so great to see her like grow. And we're taking care of a lot of kids who aren't able to get in the medical system that I used to work in. And so as an anesthesiologist walking into a really nice private practice here in Columbus, I didn't realize how many people were not able to get there because of waiting lists, because of logistics, they were too far. 
or because of time, you know, they don't have someone to bring them to the hospital or, you know, so there's just all these factors as a clinical anesthesiologist that I didn't realize that I've learned leaving the medical system. I'm sure there are a lot of surgical specialists that are listening right now that are thinking, wow, that would be great for me. I could just do one day a month. I could bring them into my office and then I'd be able to do it. I'm an ENT. So we're, most of what we do is not sterile. Like when you're if fine, if you're doing open neck surgery, then you need to be in the operating room. But a lot of the stuff we do, endoscopic, you know, sinus surgery, you, you could do that in an office with an anesthesiologist. You don't need to go to the operating room. So yeah, no, this is like a whole new world. I mean, it happened with surgery centers, right? They first moved out of the hospital. Oh no, everything needs to be done in the hospital. Well, no, let's go to a surgery center. And now this is the next iteration on that. Actually, we don't need a surgery center. The insurance company is going to be happy because it's going to be cheaper for them. The surgeon's going to be happy because they are going to have less downtime between cases and it'll be better for the patients because it'll be less rising deductibles, rising healthcare, rising healthcare costs. This sounds like it, it could really blow up. Well, I, well, I've spoken with orthopedic surgeons, plastic surgeons, gynecologists, dermatologists, ENTs. You're totally right. Every field who were procedures are involved or surgeries are involved, there are always a list of low-hanging fruit, things that can be done so quickly that doesn't need to be done in an operating room. And like you said, there's a lot of surgeons who would just like to stay in their office. They see people in clinic and then the next day they go to the OR or their second half day they go. And obviously the OR is another monster. It's run by, you know, there's different specialists. It's not really your own. So absolutely. And then when you talk about overhead, absolutely. Insurance companies are very happy. But just as a person in the healthcare system in general, I know, and you know, if you're doing a procedure that's a five-minute procedure and you're, you know, a quick ear tubes, right? Like that you're, if you're doing it in a surgery center or hospital, that is a lot of resources that are being spent for that 10-minute procedure, right? And I respect the, what the procedure needs, but does it need a surgery center operating room and all the things behind it. And then when you think about the whole system as a whole, what can and should be done in an operating room, there's more space for that. No one needs to do dental extractions in a sterile operating room when you have an orthopedic surgeon who needs to open up a shoulder that's, that has an abscess or that has an infection. And so it's optimizing the operating room it's decreasing the costs of procedures that don't need that crazy overhead. And then it's increasing efficiency. So we started in the dental world. And I will tell you in Ohio, there's a 10 to 12 month wait for a five-year-old kid in an underserved area. So they're on Medicaid, let's say. There's a 10 to 12 month wait at surgery centers and hospitals here in Ohio. And we, we are in Illinois as well. The city of Chicago, 20 to 24 months. So you're a five-year-old kid. Let's say you're the parent of this five-year-old kid. Rotted teeth, unfortunately, different factors. In pain, not eating, right? Has infections. You can't extract that tooth for 20 to 24 months based on your insurance and based on the backlog of people. Now think about it. That's just that 2021. That fall out first. Yeah. 2021, United States of America. That's all I got to say. And that's just dental. And that's what we've, that's a large portion of our business this moment. But that same aspect of optimizing the OR, optimizing people's care and lack of progression of disease and all these things. So this, you know, started in 2014, there's a lot of 
roadblocks. We kept moving forward. What's really affected me is being a physician, starting a company that's taking care of patients, but it's entrepreneurship with a mindset of how you can truly problem solve and impact people's lives. That's how I know business right now. And so as I was meeting entrepreneurs, as I was helping to build a company alongside my co-founders, I met a lot of great people who were also looking for funding. A lot of great people. And myself and the two co-founders being anesthesiologists practicing for a while, we were fortunate and still grateful enough to self-fund for a while. So money wasn't an issue at the moment. It was everything else. <laughs> How do we do this? We don't know anything. Other people still learning the game, but needed funding as well. So me being an angel investor, there were a, a few entrepreneurs that I met, got really um, close with and invested in their companies. But there was a lot of entrepreneurs doing a lot of big things. As I was talking about this constantly, because I'm so passionate about it and just became this thing where I was excited when I went to work, a lot of people around me, many of them were physicians, said, wow, you're, you started this, you're investing in these things. Wow, I want to get involved somehow. I want to invest in these things. And so that's where in 2015, so about a year and a half later after Smile and Smile&D started, we started a fund. And this was myself and my co-founder of Loud Capital called my name's Darshan. Serial entrepreneur was helping a lot of these entrepreneurs out and was helping communicate to me, gosh, you know, that we need more funds here. We need money to invest in these great companies that I'm mentoring. That's what he was doing at the time. So myself and him got together and we said, why don't we just start a fund? And at the time I said it so nonchalantly, I had no idea what a fund was, like how this works, but I, I might've used, let's pool money and invest. I, I forget exactly how it went. But a few months later, after we went to an attorney and talked about it, talked to people who've raised a fund before, we raised a fund and went to several people around me and was like, hey, I know I've never done this before, but you know, a couple things. Number one, I started a business. I'm learning a ton. You know, I'm passionate about it. I'm constantly asking questions and reading. And then I'm investing my own money. So I've learned a lot through that. And the most important thing was I was a trustworthy person. I was a credible person. It was, I wasn't a person who was like an irresponsible blah, 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 blah. It was, it was like, hey, Naveen is actually interested in this. He, he's going to at least take this seriously. That's how we raised the money. And it was an initial, very small fund. I call it an angel fund because there was deals that already been vetted by people we knew and we helped learn the process and we invested in them. And that was our first fund in 2015. Fast forward, the name is Loud Capital. And the reason we call it Loud is because we realized that Outside of funding, a lot of these entrepreneurs needed help with so many other resources, right? As I was telling you, we didn't know marketing, business models, legal, all these things. A lot of entrepreneurs don't know that. I mean, and, and again, you don't have to know that. You just have to recognize that you need help in certain areas. So to really help mitigate the risk of a startup, because there's so many obstacles ahead of you, outside of funding, it's like, how do I spend the money? What's, how do I prioritize? I'm so small right now. What should I focus on right now? It's really like helping with different steps. And is it different for everybody? Sure. Are there a lot of commonalities to obstacles, especially initially in this phase and then this phase? Yes. So we decided very early on, number one, we loved entrepreneurship. And number two, how do we mitigate as much risk as we could? So we invest money and then we are loud and active investors versus being silent investors. And there's a lot of investors out there, individual or even firms, 
who aren't necessarily entrepreneurial or have entrepreneurial backgrounds. So maybe financial is their forte and they invest and they try to be as helpful as possible, but they don't have another, let's say team members that can fulfill skill sets that are missing in the journey. I understand that. But if you can build a comprehensive team to strategically invest in a company and help them in every possible way to knock down as many obstacles, number one, it's fun. Number two, there's going to be a higher chance of success. And number three, you're doing your best fiduciary duty for your investors, which in the end is best for your business. Loud capital. So it's still the entrepreneur's business, but you are an advisor, meaning you give advice, but they don't, you don't dictate what happens. Like you're a that, minority partner. That's correct. When you have more established companies with a board of directors and, and we have, you know, invested in multiple companies and we've also led rounds. So we've led a series A. And so that's a larger, more, you know, have like angel rounds, you have early rounds of individuals coming in. When you raise a series A, which is a set amount, you've already proven your business model and you're trying to invest that money into hiring more talent and expand your business and you form a board and it could be before that or even after that, many times a venture capital investor or a large investor or a lead investor who actually negotiates that term can have a board seat. That's most times. So we have led a couple rounds. We have invested in companies where they do have a board and we've been invited. So to answer your question, we don't really use the word dictate because dictate will not work, at least from our perspective. And, and it happens, by the way. Someone invests in your company and dictates, we need this board seat, or we need this, or we have a lot of strings. And many times entrepreneurs don't have a lot of options. So they'll take it because they need the fuel. We look at it as a way like this is a long-term relationship. And it's not always going to be hunky-dory, but there needs to be a healthy friendship, let's call it, or relationship where we're investing money. So yes, we have skin in the game. We own a minority stake of your company, but we all win if this company does well. And so the last thing we think of is dictating to a founder or a group of people who that's the reason we invested in, right? Unless some significant changes occur and there's chaos and you know someone needs to take the bull by the horn, we usually do not dictate. So Something that we were talking about before the show was that we're around the same age, right? So practicing for a while and then look around and go, so um, yeah, this is what I'm going to be doing for the next 30 years, huh? You know, we need something else. We need something to get excited about, right? And I had someone on the show a year or two ago, Jeff Ross, where he has a fund as well. He runs a hedge fund. And at the time he had, he was about to leave medicine, but then went back to practicing radiology and ran the fund on the side. And actually I just saw him post on Twitter that now he's out of medicine completely. He's done. It's over. You stopped practicing anesthesiology a, a couple of years ago. So my question for you, is the grass really greener? For me, it was because the stories I just told you about SmileMD and starting Loud Capital really expanded into a couple of different locations, Chicago and Raleigh. We also have an innovation center in Beijing. And it got to the point where there was enough to do, enough excitement and opportunity, and then also confidence in myself after several years of going through Smile and D and then Loud Capital to say, you know what, if I make a big move and spend all my time and energy on this, I, number one, will be more fulfilled. 
number two can make a real impact with this company. But what was going on at my practice, which was a dream job. When I started SmileMD, my mentality just started shifting where I was so excited to build something on my own. We got a little traction. I got some highs, plenty of lows. What was happening at work? What happens at work for a lot of physicians? Probably some lows, probably a lot of average days, and probably not a lot of highs or minimal highs. Now, if, if there's a physician who's getting highs out there that's been in practice for several years, that is amazing. I'm envious. I never got those, but it was either a boring, safe day, or it was some lows and it was a stressful day. And I'm human, like many people, but that got to me. But my outlet was these was SmileMD initially and then Loud Capital. So I had these highs on this completely different world and it was almost unfair comparing it to my day job. Over several years, after being able to create and learn new skill sets, when the field of anesthesiology, which is so safe to this day, doesn't mean it can't improve, but it's very safe. There's not a lot going on. In fact, when you read the research and people might be mad at me because I don't read the journals as closely as many others do, there's not a lot of changes. I mean, you know, certain rats experimented with this and this might help. I'm like, you know, that's not really doing a lot for me at the moment. But I was reading about creating something, creating a model where I'm helping kids and taking care of kids right now that my own hospital system, which is like a badass hospital is not taking care of. Now that's exciting. That's fulfilling. So grass is greener for me, but I was at a point where I was very bored and I was getting irritated at my job. And so I, I tell people I had to leave. I had to leave for my own self. I knew what was out there. I had confidence in myself and I'm not proposing that anyone leave their job or anyone even have, have to start a venture. But I will say, even if you're really happy with your job, you're 20 years in, you're getting high still. I still think you need more than one bucket to fulfill yourself long-term. And so some of you have hobbies. There's a lot of physician musicians, which is awesome, right? But there's people who just are so busy or so stressed and they go to their job and they go home to their families or their domestic life of some sort. And that's enough, which is okay. The problem is no one ever told us that probably wasn't going to be okay for our mind. And I think it's all, all it's all explainable by hedonic adaptation, right? Like when you're anesthetizing people, the patients tend to be very similar. And like you said, if everything goes great, if you are very good at your job, it's not going to be that exciting because you don't want it to be that exciting. And a lot of what we do is that. It's very similar, you know, sinus infections, septums, tubes, tonsils, adenoids, nose, right? Like, so this stuff, it does get monotonous. I mean, I, I love my patients. It's a privilege to do what I do. But at the same time, you're right. Like a good day is like <laughs> not many highs, just no lows. And they tend to, and the days tend to run into each other. But what you're saying is there's always a new opportunity. There's always something new to learn about. There's always, you got that. You don't have that hedonic adaptation yet. I mean, it might happen at some point where this then gets old, but you're, when this gets old for you, you're going to be in a very good position financially as well, right? If it's gotten boring. So yeah, you're just constantly learning something new. And I think your advice to the listeners is you have to find something like that 
to, as you said, fill your bucket. There needs to be something like for me, it's the podcast, right? Where I'm constantly speaking to interesting people that give me great ideas for what I can do differently with my life. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's exactly right. And I will say that in, in this day and age with technology, you're able to do more, but I also think we're inundated with more people doing a lot of different things. I wonder if that is intimidating. I wonder if it, if you feel like you're behind a little bit, if you're a busy practicing physician who uh, that's kind of redundant, right? A busy practicing physician. If you're a physician and you come back from work, I mean, does it seem like you even have time to do stuff? And so it's almost not fair. It's not like everyone has this conscious decision like, oh, I could be doing more. But people need to hear this. People need to hear that if we prioritize some other outlets, of course, after taking care of your family and, and all these things. You need something to look forward to. You need something else to look forward to. You need something. And that's actually what I just spoke to one of my friends about. You need to, something to look forward to that is yours and that is different. And you need to figure out what that is so that at the end of the day, you're like excited to do it. And there are going to be some days where you're just too exhausted, but other days where you do have the time and you can do it and you're looking forward to it. And that's what you're going to talk to the next time you're at a cocktail party. If we ever go to cocktail parties again, this is going to be the thing that you're going to be talking about. But to the people who look forward to their job because it's new or because they just joined a practice or they're still in their phase of life where they're still excited about work, they still should hear this and understand it, that that won't last forever, right? I'm sure you as an ENT surgeon, the first few this or that you did, it was like, like a different level. And now it might be Sorry, new attendings to rain yeah. on your parade here. Yeah, but that's the point. Way to go I and pop their balloons. Rain on your parade in a decent way so it doesn't just hit you with hail like yeah. it did me. <laughs> we don't talk about personal finance very much on, on this show, on sure. my show, but sometimes. So my understanding, the way what I do with my money is I invest in index funds. It's very exciting. Whatever floats your bill, man. Watching paint dry. It's low risk. Find... So fine. Index funds, low risk. You can't beat the market. Real estate, because the tax advantages, because the tax laws were written by rich people who own land. Fine. That makes sense. But then there's hedge funds, private equity, venture capital, angel investing. So these are higher risk investments, but the potential for higher reward. Convince me that the reward is worth the risk. Yeah. So actually, I wouldn't pin private investments with higher risk. So the, the whole world of private markets, so let's call public markets, stocks, bonds, everything on the stock market, everything else in the private world is called alternative investments. And so we allowed capital, a large portion of alternative investments. We've only talked about venture capital. There's also an industry called revenue financing. There's also an industry called life settlements. There's also real estate, which many people know they can touch it. It's very common. It's recognized as more stable because it's a physical asset that people can touch and see and live in. And again, I respect that as an asset. But when you look at anything non-real estate, it becomes a little bit scarier. I would say it's less transparent. There's a lot of private people that are there to just take your money, scams, all these things. There's less regulation and reporting. So the public market. Again, I, when, I'm, when we're talking about risk, there's actually plenty of risk in the public market. It's just that there's entities that you can look up and that people have applied for. But you can still lose your shirt in the stock market. 
And so the private market, it's like, how do you maintain a level of communication, professionalism, transparency? That's what we're trying to work on. Again, as a person who wasn't in the space, and now when I look at it, I'm like, wow, this is like the Wild West here. There's a lot of people that just want to take your money. They really don't give a crap. But there are plenty who do, who actually are doing good work. But how do you create that line of communication and trust? And that's what we're trying to do slowly, building a foundation. So to answer your question, there's actually different risk stratifications in the private markets. There's actually much more conservative. There's actually you know, like revenue financing, which is uh, an arm that we run, which is essentially giving a type of financing to growing companies who need short-term financing. This is actually what banks were supposed to do, but there's plenty of regulation and things they can and can't do. But there's a big gap in the market of companies needing money quicker than two months. Like, hey, I need money because I got this big contract. I need to fulfill it. I need to hire people and buy materials ahead of time. So revenue financing serves that industry. And when done with the right level of diligence and caution, like any business, can actually be a pretty conservative investment. So there's a lot of actually investors that we have, actually a lot of real estate investors who look at the returns on revenue financing, do their diligence and say, wow, I want to try this out. It's a big market. So that's something we can talk about at some point. But as a high level, I like to just educate people on the private markets is the Wild West, and we're trying to create a brand that is curating quality investments and communicating what the risk level is, because that's a lot of times not there as well. Like, how risky is this? So how am I to tell, to quote Luke Skywalker, how am I to know the good side from the bad? So just like any company, number one, it's always easier when someone you know has invested in them for a while. That's always the easiest, but many times you don't have anyone around you. Maybe you're the first person to invest in a revenue financing opportunity. How do you do that, right? So it's looking at track record. How long have you been doing this? How much have you paid out to investors, right? And so proudly in the, you know, the first quarter, we paid out, you know, a few million to investors and we can show that. So when people are like, hey, how, how do you pay people out? Well, this is money that was made, paid out to investors and money was you know, made over here. I mean, there's documentation of this. So it's really asking what to look for. And so one of the things that I like doing with first time investors or even seasoned investors who are new to revenue financing is what should I think about? So you know, whether you come into our funds or other funds, to me, especially medical students and physicians out there, again, that's who I was several years ago. So I'm very empathetic to teaching people about this world because I think it's very empowering. So outside of filling the bucket of fulfillment and doing, you know, something to look forward to, there's also income that can be made while you're not working your tail off in an operating room or somewhere else in the hospital. And I'm very empathetic to that because there's a lot of people who don't realize that. They say, I'm gonna work until this day, I'm gonna invest conservatively. And, and by the way, that's fine. Everyone has their own goals, but I just believe and we should at least know that these opportunities exist. Like if I told you right now that your liquid can make 12% annually right now in this market paid out quarterly, there's a lot of people that say, come on, man, like that's risky, whatever. But there's a lot of money going through these kind of vehicles. And so I'm passionate about bringing up 
what I've experienced and what I now am doing full time and letting our world know. And I just, not even just physicians, I would say professionals who are busy working on their craft that they work so hard to do. So how do we end up dipping our toes in something like this? And, and what's the minimum financial bar for entry, right? Because I would assume with these large private funds, you need a lot of liquid to, to be able to even pick up the phone. So a lot of standard larger venture funds, there, there are huge minimums. In fact, yeah, and some individuals aren't even allowed. We do very small venture capital funds that are like several million, but for an investor, you can have physicians, especially in the medical students, or, you know, come in at about a minimum of 50K, which is not a small amount, but for venture funds or for these types of funds, it's 50 and above. Many times it's actually a hundred, but there's exceptions. There are opportunities where you can put 10K and above. There are certain opportunities where there are 25K and above. There's no hard and fast rules, but there's even new venture funds that are coming out that are almost like crowdfunding aspects where you have a minimum of $1,000. And so I'm glad you asked that question because again, regardless of our specific funds, in general, as long as you know that kind of investment exists, what the benefit is, what the risks are, then a lot of these things are going to become more accessible as investments are becoming more, you know, more common and, and the ability to use online platforms and digital platforms to invest some money to get a piece of something, that's not going to stop. So it's really important probably now more than ever to educate on what's out there, whether it's for you or not. And also more dangerous, right? Because the more, the easier it is to invest in something, the less likely they are to be quite as transparent about things. And then, you know, it yeah, seems like absolutely. that's ripe for people to take advantage. Yeah. And and I will say, you know, starting a, a VC firm from scratch, I mean, I don't know if I had, would ever have the energy to redo it, but it's not easy starting from scratch because of what you just said. There's a lot of noise out there. There's people with large track records who have been doing this for years. And now we're six years in, we have two exits, which means, you know, companies got bought, investors got money. We can show that track record. And so now the conversations aren't, wait, you don't have a track record. You don't have evidence of funds being paid to investors. You know, like these simple, good questions we weren't able to answer before. It was like, you have to believe what I'm saying. You have to believe the credibility. Being a physician, especially to, especially first-time investors and for especially a lot of physicians who kind of reach out and are interested, there's a level of trust there, but it's not easy, right? You still have to really explain your thesis and why you're doing it. And now that I'm full-time, that conversation gets a little bit easier too, in the sense of, wait, you're working, you're full anesthesia practice and you're doing this. It's really about how much time and energy and how much risk have you taken personally that you're going to take care of my money, which I respect. These are all questions I would want to ask. So if I invest in loud capital, am I investing in everything that you're invested in or I choose specific ventures? Yeah. So we have specific ventures and we have a couple of funds that are combinations. And so what we usually do is we say, you know, we just kind of go through the everything. Well, what are your goals with this? How long do you want money tied up? You know, how much do you want to invest? What have you done before and it's worked and has not worked? So we go through, but we have multiple funds. So if you invest, it'd be like, hey, I want 
to invest in this venture capital fund because they're amazing companies and I see this great traction. And so I want to invest in that fund. Oh, and by the way, I want to be a little bit more conservative with this money and I want my money to only be tied up for a year. So I'm going to do in this one year vehicle that pays me quarterly dividends. And after one year, I want to decide if I want my money back. Those are conversations we have every day. And so there's specific ones. And that's, this is something where if people are interested, I can showcase. Actually, they're all on our uh, website, loud.vc. And the funds are specifically there and they kind of give a synopsis and there's an opportunity to look at them. Well, this has been super informative for me, but we've got time for one more question or one more statement, I guess. For the med students out there listening, the physicians listening, you've got their ears. What's one more thing that you'd like them to take away from our conversation? So I would like to emphasize, if I haven't already, that I'm one of you. I took some small steps when I saw opportunity with people around me and kept taking these bunch of you know small steps. And now it looks like a leap. So people think I made this drastic move and this big jump but it was really a lot of steps and my mindset started growing and shifting. And what was pure physician only in, in clinical practice is now physician doing many things outside of clinical medicine. And I just want to say, I have chronicled this into a book that I wrote that launches next month in January. And it's called Physician Underdog, Leveraging the Underdog Mentality to Move Forward. And that's on a website, www.physicianunderdog.com. On there, I put a PDF that 10 things medical students have asked. I talk to a lot of medical students and they ask a lot about how to start a business, entrepreneurship, the value of investing, all these things. So I made a PDF. It's for free. You can go to the website and download it. You can learn about that. The book comes out in January, which is the full explanation of our conversation today of why I started where I'm at, what I see is an opportunity for physician leadership. You know, there's a lot of towards the end, it's what can you do for yourself today? Not everyone needs to go this journey. That was a little crazy that I went down this journey, but what can you do for yourself right now, even if you're fulfilled, to start expanding your mindset, hopefully becoming more fulfilled. And I would say being prepared for the times that, you know, you're starting to feel like you're in a rut or if you have a ceiling um, above you. So that's what I would say. Dig your well before you're thirsty. Exactly. Naveen Goyal, loud.vc, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. For doctors, the story has changed. Visit drpodcastnetwork.com slash locum story for unbiased information about locum tenens and see if it should be your next chapter. And remember, locum tenens tends to trend as a godsend, men to burnt out ends. Everything in this podcast is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, and we are not providing medical advice. No physician-patient relationship is formed, and anything discussed in this podcast does not represent the views of our employers. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.